welcome to AIJ Cast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. Friends, we anticipate that our next episode will get us back on track with new episodes as we document our collaborative process. And so on this episode, we dip back into the archives, this time revisiting part of our third ever episode way back in 2017 with Joshua Rashad McFadden. Joshua is an award-winning photographer, and back in 2017, we spoke with him at the Savannah College of Art and Design campus here in Atlanta. Joshua, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I want to start kind of back childhood. You grew up in Rochester, mm-hmm. and want to kind of dig into that and talk to me about how you see some of those moments in your childhood maybe leading towards where you are now in terms of photography and in terms of the power of image. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I grew up in Rochester, New York, um, never moved, you know, uh, all of my family's still there, um, with, uh, three brothers, three brothers, one older brother, two younger brothers, you know, my, my mother and father, we lived in the city of Rochester, and then later, I guess when I was going into middle school, we moved to the suburbs, um, which is known as Gates Chalai, and then and beyond, um, until I graduated. Um, and so she taught me how to draw and um, shade those drawings. And so since then, you know, I've always been interested. And so uh, she also got me my first camera. And I think that was around age seven. And, um, you know, I always took pictures of my family, my friends, um, things I just saw down the street, so on and so forth. And so, going, you know, throughout grade school, I've all, I was always taking the art classes, doing extracurricular art things after school, so on and so forth, um, just always. So for art, you're talking broadly kind of image oh, yeah. art, not just photography or film. No, no, yeah, so charcoal drawing and printmaking, painting, uh, arts and crafts, anything creative in, in that way that, I, you know, I use my hands and the visual arts. And um, funny thing is I didn't see photography as a art or a fine art back then. You know, I just saw it as photography or photos, you know, photographs. Um, I didn't... Um, like a family documentary? Yeah, of, you know, the photo album. The, the historical um, archive. Exactly, the old... The old pictures right. of your family that your you know your parents show you or your grandparents show you, and then pictures that you know you take at birthday parties. You know you have those photo albums or family vacations, so on and so forth. Graduations, so on and on. Do you remember an image from those early years that kind of grabbed your imagination? Um, that I took. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember a photo I took of a cat. My, our neighbor, I think she was like a cat lady, but she had so many cats and they <laughs> were always, <laughs> they would always come and, you know, into our, our yard and I would take pictures of them. And so, yeah, the cat photos, isn't that interesting? Now yeah. They're, now they're popular on uh, <laughs> Instagram. But anyway, so yeah. You I were just way before your time. Exactly. So we t- <laughs> took, I took a photo of this cat and it just seemed to be bothered by my camera or by me. And he would always put his paw up to cover his face, you know, like I was the 
paparazzi or something. I just thought that was so funny. And so that kind of just showed me, you know, how photographs can, I don't know, be humorous or, you know, you can uh, capture nature and, you know, not just, you know, your family or things, you know, things like that. Can you think of an image that someone else took or something? I mean, I don't know what age it would be, but something Mm -hmm. where it just kind of hit you viscerally, that there was something different about the power of art. That had to be when I discovered Roy DeCarava and his work, which sadly wasn't until maybe 2013. So way, <laughs> way, 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 way after, you know, um, you know, that point where, tell, I, where I started. Yeah. So tell us about his work. And uh, so Roy DiCarava, you know, is from, from New York City. Um, and, you know, he's since passed away. His, you know, work was, he created work, you know, in the uh, 50, 40s, 50s, 60s. And, you know, just amazing black and whites. And he has, well, my first photography book that I got myself was um, his book called The Sound That I Saw. And it's this photographs of jazz. And I just found it so interesting how he captured movement and how he captured music. Um, And how the photographs weren't always this sharp, you know, perfect landscape image or this perfect portrait. But you can see the movement in the faces while the woman is singing or the movement of the instrument. Um, and it would be a little blurry or, or really, really dark, right? And um, of course, growing throughout you know, photography school, we learn how to get that perfect photograph. Um, but his book and his work showed me that, okay, you know, I, have, I have a little freedom and I can, I can create work from my soul with the camera. So there's a little bit of deconstruction in his work going mm-hmm, on, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's taking the rules of photography and breaking them on purpose. Exactly. And, and usually, and usually, when you see artists do that, um, you know, they're they they become very popular. You know, their work becomes very popular because they're doing something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, for what was it about that thing, other than just the deconstruction of the rules, that conveyed something? Clearly, there's something in that the way he was presenting jazz musicians that the particular way that he deconstructed the image conveyed a certain emotion. Well, right. It conveyed so many emotions and it wasn't even just the uh, jazz images. Um, What was very interesting about the book was it went into the community and when he photographed the everyday life of uh, the African-American family or the African-American community and put importance to that. And he, uh, he saw himself as, not as you know, the documentary photographer, but as the photographer or the artist that uh, saw the importance of uh, photographing these precious moments, but doing that in a way that expressed how he felt. And so you really see the emotion within the photographs, whether it's you know, happy or sad, you know, sor- sorrow, you know, if you want to take it, take it there. That seems to be an interesting point because one could see on the surface the, the, the depth that film or video might be able to portray better than photography, but you're talking about a still photo that's conveying those very same things that video would be able to capture. 
Right, right, right. Ways. And so, and, you know, because video and film, well, came from, you know, still photography. Right. So it always goes back to that still image. And when you learn, you know, videography, you, uh, you know, you have to work off of that still so that every point within that film, um, when you press that pause button, it'd be a beautiful photograph. So film is still working off of the, the still, the right. moving film. Oh, yes, of course. You, after growing up in Rochester and the suburbs, then you moved south to go to college and to grad school. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Oh, that, that was, int- it was like a, uh, not much of a culture shock, but I guess it was maybe. Um, yeah, went to North Carolina for uh, undergrad at Elizabeth City State University, uh, which is a small HBCU, um, and it used to be a uh, teacher's college. And went there to, you know, study art. And w- what was interesting was is I always thought I was going to go to this, you know, art school for undergrad, but, um, you know, uh, history uh, kind of led me to Elizabeth City and, you know, I'm so thankful for that. And I learned, I learned so much. But it was my first time being in the South and a small country, you know, town at that. So it was such a big difference um, than, you know, Rochester, which is smaller than New York City, but sure. still, still a, still a uh, bigger, you know, developed city. Still a cosmopolitan yeah. area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of the things that you noticed that were different about a small town versus big town, south versus north? Well, it's slow. <laughs> so <laughs> slow. So slow. Uh, you have to drive. But um, another big difference, I guess, was experiencing uh, racism, you know, um, blatant racism. For the first time. Yeah. I mean, that that is interesting to me as a as a as a white southerner who has also lived in the north. It's not that the north has an absence of racism. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of racism in yes. some ways. So what was your experience of it? It was the first I was pulled over. I was pulled over for the first time and it was at a stop sign, which was interesting. And uh, two of my friends were in the car. And uh, he said I, you know, didn't completely stop, but, you know, that was not true, you know, because I was stopped at a sign and he turned the lights on. But it was really to um, to search my car for whatever, whatever he thought it was weapons or drugs or I don't know. I don't know. I just know that he asked for my license and registration. I asked what was wrong. Um, he really didn't let me know besides, you know, I don't think you stopped completely. But then he proceeded to ask all of us to get out of the car. I really didn't know my rights. You know, I was young. Sure. You know, still, you know, I was, what, 19? So we got out of the car, but next thing you know, now we're on the curb. And now it's been 45 minutes. And now backup's being called. And now canine is being called, and my car is being torn apart. And uh, our book bags are being torn apart. And so, and just, being in that situation and not understanding what is going on or what we did wrong, um, and then still not understanding that until I went home <laughs> for uh, winter break and told my parents, you know, so now it's been, you know, that happened 
in, you know, early fall. So now it's been some months before I even told them. So tell them, you know, oh, I got pulled over and this is what happened. And I see the panic in their face, you know, in their eyes. And, you know, and then my parents got in an argument about it. You know, um, my mother saying, well, you did right getting out of the car. And my father saying, no, you did, these are your rights. You're not supposed, you know, they, just, they shouldn't ask you this and they shouldn't ask you that. Um, they had no right to do this. And so now they're in an argument as far as, well, he could be killed if he's not taken out of the car. Well, he can go to jail. And then learning that, well, either way, if, you know, if they wanted to take me to jail or kill me, then they, you know, they had the power to do that. You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right, right. And so that's, that was a wake-up call. That was a wake-up call for me. And not too long after that, you know, Trayvon Martin happened. And so, you know, so now, really for, for my generation, we're, we're beginning to experience that. And so, and then all at once. And so, that, you know, that, that, was, that was it for me. Joshua Rashad McFadden recorded back in 2017 on AIJ Cast. We'll be back with more of that conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick word. As always, we encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com, which is where you will find links to our artists, including their news, information, and products. Among the things you'll find there are links to Joshua Rashad McFadden's work, including a link to his latest book, I Believe I'll Run On. We've also got information there about how to support the work of AIJCast through your donations, to become a sustaining member through our Patreon account, and a whole heck of a lot more. Just go to AIJCast.com. And now, back to more of our 2017 conversation with Joshua Rashad McFadden. Well, and your work is is absolutely powerful. I mean, I'm I'm drawn to the images that I've seen of of the three or four projects that I've seen in, <laughs> in your work, and and it's political. Yes. And so, one of the things I'm curious about is, do you think that that history of moving south politicized you, or just politicized you in a new way? towards mm. the kind of photography that you do? I think so. I think, I think. Or were you political already? Would be another way of putting the question. Not so much. Okay. Not so much. Well, not before I moved to, uh, to the South. I, I started this program on, on my campus called Students Against Violence Everywhere. And um, I got that idea from high school. I was in a, a program called Students Against Violence Initiative, and I said, you know, this is a good program. We kind of we're kind of doing something doing something right. I felt like I was doing something good, and so I wanted to start that on my campus. And there was, you know, there was nothing like it. And we did work in the communities, and we grew to, you know, about seven hundred members, and you know, it was a, it was a good thing. And and then with that, we began to go into uh, underserved communities and their schools and I begin to see you know these alternative schools where the student you know uh, nobody cared about the students and they didn't care if the students finished school or went to college or or anything and so I think this is where the shift began began to happen as far as um, just in my life as far as becoming aware of um, politics and what goes on um, in our economy and what goes on in our education systems. But there's one thing I've heard recently is someone saying, if you're not political right now, you're not paying attention. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, really, you know, those, 
you know, the incident with the police officer and then, you know, and then going into, you know, doing groundwork in the schools. And then also we did a lot with, um, you know, 2008. I, I started school in 2008 and it was also my the first year I was able to vote. And then, you know, I was able to vote for Barack Obama. Um, and then the second term, also I was still in school, um, you know, where voter, voter um, suppression laws were starting to come back, right? And then starting to get involved in those protests and learning what those protests meant um, in North Carolina, right? And now we hear now all of these terrible, terrible things that you know, North Carolina is doing. Um, being there and not realizing that in that moment, um, you know, or seeing that now, I'm like, wow, I was right in the middle of all of this mess that's going on now. Um, that's, that's what began to move me in this direction that, you know, now with my, with my uh, creative work. Some of the things that I've seen you in interviews talking about is how you see strong parallels between the new civil rights movement, the movement that's happening right now, mm-hmm. and the old civil rights movement. Of course, civil rights is as old as time itself, but right. when we talk about that, we're talking about 50s, 60s, 70s desegregation, Martin Luther King, Malcolm mm-hmm. X. Where do you see parallels? Where do you see differences in the moment now and that moment 50 years ago? Well, I'll just start to say that there's not many differences. I guess the big difference is that we don't see a one leader of the, or maybe two, you know, leader of the uh, civil rights movement or, you know, um, or these movements that we have now. We see like little pockets, right? And I think, I think it's very interesting. So we had the civil rights movement of the um, 50s and 60s and, you know, Martin Luther King. But with this current generation, we, we see Black Lives Matter. And yes, it was started by, you know, these three women. Um, but it was started with a hashtag, right? And so it gives, you know, the world, you know, the whole country, if not the world, um, that ability to take leadership, right, and to, and to have a voice. There's also this interesting context that we're in right now where, and I think this goes right into the kind of thing you're doing, the, the power of image in both moments mm-hmm. is huge. The right. power of the uh, Bloody Sunday in Selma, the, the video of the police turning fire hoses and dogs loose on children mm-hmm. that's broadcast across the nation. Right. And now we're looking at, I mean, there's pictures of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown or the video of Alton Sterling mm-hmm. and uh, Philando Castile. And Eric Garner. And Eric Garner. Mm-hmm. Those are moments that have galvanized people um, and hopefully woken them up as well to some of right. the political realities going on and the racial realities going on. And want to jump back to your projects because I think your projects touch on these in different ways. Um, the, the first one that I was aware of was the project Colorism. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that project? When I began to think about and see uh, women kind of taking ownership of their image, uh, you know, a lot of women were starting to, in my generation, I'll, I'll clarify that, were starting to cut off all of their hair and you know, term going natural, but also the the movement that came with I, that idea is, of course, you know, it's healthy for the hair, but it's it symbolizes women, you know, you know, letting go of this idea, you know, your hair having to be um, a certain way in order to um, fit into uh, 
you know, uh, the dominant society, right? And so I began to explore that and ask questions, you know, so, you know, what, you know, what is going on or how, you know, how does this feel um, for, for you? As I went on, I saw people take interest to this project and I really, I still didn't understand what I had there. Um, and um, I saw international interest in the idea, but people started to bring up the topic of, you know, skin tone and, um, at that moment, I didn't know what colorism was. And so now I'm, I'm looking into, okay, so what is it with this um, light skin, dark skin uh, conversation or, or, and why either of these skin tones are better than one of the other uh, skin tones? And so colorism is, you know, the, the discrimination against a person because of the tone of the color of the skin. Which is, you know, very interesting. So it's just not black and white, but just the shade of brown. And so this history actually goes back, you know, to slavery, so on and so forth. And now it's institutionalized and it affects people and how they, you know, how they work on their job and what they say and so on and so forth. And so the, the issue is very deep and, um, and problematic. And so I wanted to do a project that took this took the issue and simplified it, right? Um, and not in just a way that we put these skin tones in a, in a range from light to dark or dark to light, because I think that would further perpetuate that idea of good or bad. You know, what can we do to um, have a portraiture project, portraiture project that just show the positivity in whatever skin tone that they have? And it sounds like a very simple idea. It really is. Um, but I think the project is so piercing because really no one has seen these women be vulnerable and speaking about their skin tone in a way that they did in this project. Specifically within families, I, mean, I didn't realize I was light-skinned until in the fourth grade. You know, my mother um, is one of 10 and the lightest of all of her brothers and sisters as she has, you know, a different biological father. And um, after my cousins made fun of me for a little while, I just came to realize that for whatever reason that we were lighter um, and that that came with certain implications. You know, they're from the South, I was from the North, and um, all the meanings that were attached to it therefore became something that I was very aware of um, from that age and fluctuating between the North and the South. And there's an aspect of it that is, for the American identity, it's deeply embedded in, in the legacy of slavery. Mm -hmm. And internationally, it's embedded in the legacy of colonialism. Right. So, for example, my wife and I were living in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and there was a product for Arab women called Fair and Lovely, mm -hmm. which was a skin lightening solution. Oh, yeah. And so this was kind of our first awareness of it beyond the American context, and it was downright shocking. It's all over the world, and it's, it's pretty sad. And the one thing about, I guess, colorism in America is that it's not, again, you know, not as blatant, right? There's the jokes about light skin and dark skin, but you won't see a skin cream. So obviously, you know. There's not a color. fair and lovely. That you know, it's not fair and lovely. Right, right, right. There are, there are creams that, you know, people we use to lighten the skin. We are way more but, sophisticated in our colorism. Oh, right. <laughs> let's, you know, let's hide it and not hire somebody, you right. know, um, and not tell them why. Now, in other countries, it would be, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, you're too dark to your face, too even. So you just, you already know you shouldn't have come. 
And so that's 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 the difference. Both is both very you know terrible, but you know that's how that's how it goes. I mean, there's some, been some interesting commentary on that lately. I think of uh, uh, Chris Rock's documentary Good Hair, which mm-hmm. tackled the issue of hair quite directly, but I think is very related to colorism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good hair is white hair essentially. It's your more European. But it's again, it's just a, this whole idea of of colorism and how, and how deep how deep it runs. It is. It's it's very deep. And then from there, I, the second project of yours that I was drawn to is after Selma. Mm-hmm. And there's one image in particular I want to talk about. But uh, give us a little background on the project itself. I begin to think about the civil rights movement and the similarities uh, between the civil rights movement of the '60s and specifically, you know, Black Lives Matter. And this is because I begin to hear a lot of critiques of the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, in the way they were handling, you know, their business. Also, I, I wanted to start this project after the um, Michael Brown and the police officer was not um, prosecuted. In Ferguson. In Fer- yes. And so after that happened, I really, I really wanted to start this project because it was 2015 was the 50th anniversary of the march from Selma to Montgomery. And uh, it was supposed to be, and it was, you know, a celebration of the victory that, you know, our, the foot soldiers had and in, in achieving voters' rights, you know, for African Americans. It was just crazy to me how in the same year we saw uprisings all across the country, all across the country. Literally, and uh, and responses all over all over the world, and I just got this feeling, you know, or this idea that are we, you know, are we moving backwards? Are we moving backwards, or where are we? And so I wanted to go to Alabama to begin to document the land and what's going on there, and uh, the generations that marched in the '60s and the generations that are marching now. And what and what that means, I wanted to go and see that for myself. It's an interesting point because I see one of the parallels that I see as a historian is that both Black Lives Matter and the SELC-led civil rights movement mm-hmm. were criticized by their elders yes. within the community as not being patient, being rash, many of the same critiques that you hear nowadays coming from the SELC generation leveled against Black Lives Matter is the same thing that they were criticized by Daddy King and his generation. Um, And so there is this interesting parallel taking place of within the community and then also what I see within the white community is the same people who say things like, well, if I were alive during the civil rights era, I would have mar- marched in Selma. Are the same people who are criticizing Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. So there is this kind of historical uh, ignorance and laugh of, lack of self-reflection in the midst of all that's happening that I exactly. think is powerful. Exactly, and, and um, you know that, and it's so important for me, you know, to to reflect. You know, I do that, you know, you, you know, you should do that for yourself to really look back and understand what's going on and what happened so that you can move forward. Joshua Rashad McFadden on AIJ Cast recorded back in 2017.
You can find him online at his website, joshuarashad.com. That's R-A-S-H-A-A-D. On our next episode, we get back to our collaborative project with photographer Ely. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do this work because of that support. So please do take just a moment, go to our website, and find that delightful little link that says support. You can also become a sustaining member of AIJCast by joining us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash AIJCast which also gives us an opportunity to express our thanks to you. And we'd love to hang out with you in the semi-social medias where our handle is on a lot of platforms, AIJCast. Our theme music comes courtesy of our house band, Mard Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the always jovial Al Mudif, who shares his winning strategy for Red Light, Green Light from last year's AIJCast staff picnic. Never moved. And I'm your host, Martham Sanders, encouraging you to create some beauty of your own And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, I hope you'll paint your own canvas with justice and peace.